Well, here I sit a high, getting ideas. Ain't nothing but a fool to live like this. Out all night, running wild. Woman sitting home with a month old child. Dang me, dang me. They ought to take a rope and hang me. High from the highest tree. Woman, would you weep for me? Roger Miller, dang me, kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you for spending a part of your week with me. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. It is great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. Man, crazy times we live in, right? Uh, I don't know what the future holds for this uh, coronavirus outbreak. Uh, I know there's no toilet paper left in McKinney, Texas. Of all the things, right? Toilet paper. Uh, Not like flu medication or vitamin C supplements. No. Toilet paper. People are afraid they're not going to be able to wipe their butts. Unbelievable. Uh, So, anyway, wash your hands. Don't cough on anyone. <laughs> it goes without saying, right? Things you should be doing anyway. Uh, but for some reason, we're in mass hysteria. And the thing that I'm most ticked off about is now we're all indoors with no sports to watch. Uh, March Madness canceled. My Baylor Bears not even going to get a chance to win the national title. Uh, what a bummer. Uh, but, I, I mean, I totally understand uh, for the safety of the athletes and uh, the spectators needed to be done Uh, look at italy i mean over a thousand deaths as we're on the air today and their healthcare system is swamped the borders are closed i mean they're ill-equipped to handle this type of outbreak so hopefully that doesn't happen here in the states but god bless each and every one of you Uh, maybe we'll be listening maybe we'll all be listening to more podcasts right (laughs) or reading a book i don't know what do you do in a time like this it's uh it's unprecedented Truly. Uh, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hunting. Uh, did a little hog dogging this week. Uh, turkey is right around the corner. And I'm not flying to South Texas. I'm driving. So um, I, I don't think the turkeys are going to give me coronavirus. So uh, it's not all doom and gloom here. I'll tell you that. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the one granddaddy passed down to you years ago because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, uh, we've got an interesting guest, Diana Rogers, a a nutritionist, dietitian, and author, uh, also a producer. Uh, She'll be here, and we're going to get into the disease that is veganism. Uh, because truly, when you think about what these people want to do to the rest of society, it is an elitist movement. Uh, third world countries can't afford to go vegan. It's fiscally impossible. They can't afford it because um, this processed glop that they are trying to pawn off as viable protein options, um, it's not affordable. So it's it's an ass-backward thing. Plus... The environmental impact of a world where everyone goes vegan. Uh, yep, Diana has studied, I mean, from the, the greenhouse gas emissions to the carbon imprint, all of that we're going to get into today. Um, and she's very interesting. She she lives on a farm that is totally self-sufficient, both raising her own 
meat in the form of poultry, pigs, beef, and growing her own vegetables. So uh, we're going to visit with Diana today. And then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to compare the two most prominent deer rifle calibers or hunting calibers in American history in the 30-06 Springfield and the 270 Winchester. Uh, most of us probably have one or the other, if not both, in our gun safe, right? Uh, I know I've got a couple 270s. One is mine, one my granddaddy passed down to me. Um, and there's a lot of history. I mean, each one is um, almost 100 years old. The 30 out 6 is well over 100 years old. And the uh, 270 win is, I think, 95 years old. So a lot of history to get into. And also, ballistically, um, how does each perform? So, John McAdams, outdoor writer, gun blogger from the Big Game Hunting blog, will be here. Uh, we'll discuss his recent article, which compares the 270 and the 30 out 6. So, that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. Let's do a quick giveaway. I recently got an entire box, like a huge shipment of Havilon knives to get into the hands of you guys and gals here. And... We'll start that with a forge skinning and processing knife and all you need to do to enter the Havilon Forge giveaway is email the word Havilon to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. It's that easy. And thanks to Havilon for this big ass box of knives that we're going to give away. Well, let's take a break. Up next, nutritionist and author Diana Rogers joins us on the Lone Star Outdoors. Through another day with a long stretch of highway. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway. Hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Hi, this is Larry Weissoon. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Flatland Calvary bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Table Stead here with you today. Thanks so much for being a part of today's presentation. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Longtime presenting sponsors. We're about to get into uh, an interesting conversation with renowned nutritionist, author, producer, really a jack of all trades, uh, Diana Rogers will be here. But before we get into that discussion, this segment of the show, 
proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and, of course, conservation. For more info, check us out at biggame.org. We'd love to have you. Um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and bring her on right now, uh, someone who I've been looking forward to visiting with for some time now. And so without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Diana Rogers to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background in nutrition and how it has led you onto this quest to educate the masses on the benefits of seeing meat as the renewable resource that it is. Sure, yes. Um, I actually started out um, with a very unconventional background to become a nutritionist, but um, uh, I, let's see, I, in college I was actually an art major and then worked in advertising and marketing for a long time and have always really been interested in food. Uh-huh. Um, I found out that I had celiac disease in my mid-20s, um, but that, you know, I was sick a lot as a kid, so mm-hmm. um, it was sort of answered a lot of issues that, you know, I've been eating wheat all my life and um, it was a real wake-up call to to feel good finally after all of that. Um, and then I um, started learning a little bit more about uh, eating kind of a more natural diet, a little less in processed foods. I got sort of into paleo, um, which is eliminating processed foods and sugars and just really focusing on meat and vegetables. And mm-hmm. that made a massive difference because just giving up gluten was one thing for me, but then really, um, I was I was still uh, on a what I call a blood sugar roller coaster. I was snacking constantly on my gluten free granola bars and <laughs> gluten free, you know, all kinds of gluten free stuff. And um, really giving that up and and um, and focusing on just nutrient dense foods, healthy fats. Um, again, lots of meat and vegetables was really a, a major life changing turning point for me. And, um, and that's when I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian so I could help other people learn how to live this way and eat this way. Mm. And it's, it's very unconventional. Um, that's not how people are taught to counsel people in nutrition in, um, classic, uh, dietitian school. Um, you know, they, they like to preach everything in moderation, you know, there's no bad foods, um, except for meat. (laughs) Um, and you know, vegetarian and and vegan diets are highly encouraged. And of course, red meat, it will give you cancer and heart disease. And we all need to be eating less of that. Um, but then the idea of, uh, you know, a paleo type diet, you know, that eliminates entire food groups. So that's a horrible way to eat. Yet, uh, vegetarian vegan diets are fine, even though <laughs> they eliminate foods too. So, um, you know, meanwhile, I, I'm married to a farmer. And, uh, and so I, I was watching how my diet was really changing to be eating everything we were producing on the farm. So we have an organic uh, vegetable CSA, and then we also raise uh, pasture-raised eggs and meat. So we do uh, pastured pork and lamb and goat. And, um, you know, pretty much now that's what I eat. I eat, or, you know, everything we raise on the farm. And I realized that no one was really talking about eating a sustainable diet like how I interpret what a sustainable diet is, both for optimal health and for 
um, you know, what's best to be growing for, you know, for the soil, mm-hmm. for, for our planet. Um, the people who are talking about sustainability either, um, you know, are, when it comes to nutrition, their, their main objective is to either eliminate or strongly reduce meat. Right. Um, because of cow farts, right? Well, I'm um, 10 days into the carnivore diet, so that, uh, oh, you are. that's not my oh. cup of tea. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then I, I've also noticed a lot of people in, um, in the, the beef world um, don't know much about nutrition. So I actually tend to go to a lot of farmer conferences and talk about optimal nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then I go to nutrition conferences and talk about regenerative agriculture. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are a few books that are close to this. There's The Vegetarian Myth, which is sort of a memoir of uh, from Lear Keith, where she talks about her experience as a vegan and how it destroyed her health and how she transitioned into a more paleo-type diet, uh, which is an awesome book. It was written a while ago, I think back in 2010. Um, and then there's Defending Beef by Nicolette Nyman, which is a little more focused on the environmental side. And so I really wanted to write a book that was sort of equal parts um, nutrition, environment, and ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm trying to sway an ethical vegan, but I, I do think that if you're trying to eat a diet of less harm, that eating well-raised large ruminants really is the solution to a diet of less harm. And so I go through sentience and least harm and, and, and basically the idea that, um, you know, a lot of people will say that, you know, grass-fed beef is elitist. And, and actually my position is that telling other people who have always traditionally eaten animal products that they can't because you're uncomfortable with it is actually quite elitist. <laughs> it's as elitist <laughs> as it gets. I mean... That's yeah. the irony. I had on uh, an, another lady who's a nutritionist. Um, oh, what is her name? Chrissy Schofield recently, and uh, she w- was vegan for two years, and then like had all of these negative health side effects, mm-hmm. um, and eventually was just like I got to start eating meat again. My body is is it's it's dying. You know, I mean, like I'm literally killing myself, and uh, and then the backlash of all these people. That came out. I mean, it was it was amazing. The point being, um, meat eaters, by and large, are not out there grandstanding on this pedestal, telling everyone else what they have to do. That's the thing that I can't stand about the vegan community is that they want to force it on us. It just pisses me off to no end. Right, and I, I think I have no problem if an adult wants to try a vegan diet, go for it. Um, I, I think there are there seem to be cases of of some adults doing okay for a, a period of time, mm-hmm. um, eliminating meat. You know, if you take enough supplements, I suppose. I don't think it's nutritionally optimal to to pull out meat. Uh, I don't, I just don't see how that's possible, and I also don't think that it's the best solution for our planet. Um, I, I do have a problem as a mother and a dietitian with programs that try to pull meat out of schools uh, because there is no evidence that taking meat away from kids will improve health outcomes um, or make any dent in environmental outcomes at all. Yeah. And so, you know, programs like Meatless Mondays, uh, where we're looking at a population of kids, 10% are homeless in New York City, and about 75% are low income, 
you know, the idea that we should be taking meat away from these kids is is absolutely unethical, in my opinion. And I know there's a lot of folks that will say, well, come on, salad once, once a week is no big deal. But we're talking about kids who need iron, they need B12. Uh, there's only been one randomized control trial looking at a diet in, in kids. Uh, it was done in Kenya with um, kids who are food insecure. They gave one group a meat supplement and one group uh, just extra calories and another group milk. Mm-hmm. And the extra meat group by far out outperformed the other groups in terms of physical abilities, in terms of academic abilities, and behaviorally. Hmm. That's really the only trial we have you know, looking at meat versus, you know, less meat, um, in kids. And, uh, so again, I just don't, I don't see how programs like meatless Mondays do anything other than, uh, you know, increase the idea that meat is a bad thing. And these kids are impressionable and they don't know. They're just being told, Hey, uh, we're not eating meat on Mondays because it's, it's bad. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for your health, which is total BS. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the, and the Meatless Mondays campaign has uh, free propaganda. You can go to their website, download it. They've got it in the schools and the cafeterias, um, claiming you know livestock take up three quarters of the planet, with no context there, no citation. Uh, you know, it takes ten ga- bathtubs full of water to make your burger. You know, as if that it's actually drinking water that's being like <laughs> evaporated into nothing if, if by cattle. So I really have tried very hard to um, actually make my own memes that counteract these ones, and they're all over my Instagram, and I'm actually getting them printed up into a brochure that farmers can take with them uh, to farmers markets or or hand to their customers that explain um, all the benefits, nutritional and environmental, um, that you know well-managed cattle can have. Um, so anyhow, so I so I started writing this book and. Then there was uh, about six months into writing the book, another vegan documentary had come out. And these things are just, they're so poorly done and they're so effective. And I Unfortunately, decided, yeah. Yeah, that, you know what, that this is how young people are learning. It's through films and video and social media. And that's where I need to focus my energy. If I'm really going to make a difference here. And so I did a crowdfunder. I had a ton of support from the real food community and got started. And so here I am many years later, um, and the book is in its final edits. It comes out uh, July 14, 2020, and we're also finishing up the film. So the film will come out um, around the book time, maybe a little bit mm. after. And, um, the, and the book is the, titled Sacred Cow? Yep, the book is titled Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, and folks can pre-order that on Amazon right now. I also have um, some incentives um, for folks to order it through through me on sacredcow.info. And then um, the, the film touches on nutrition a little bit, but largely focuses on ranchers who are raising regenerative cattle. Um, we, we traveled to Polyface Farm in Virginia. We went to um, England, to a sheep farm in northern England where... Um, you know, it, the, the anti-meat argument is pretty strong in England. 
And uh, another place we went is down in Mexico, in Chihuahua, Mexico, where mm. you clearly couldn't just crop soybeans. And uh, so it's a very brittle environment, uh, very degraded. And this guy is just turning barren desert back into basically the Serengeti. He's got wild birds coming back uh, in, in very endangered birds in the largest numbers on his ranch in, in the state of Chihuahua. And he and this network of farmers are regenerating a million acres of wow. cattle. Wow. And huh. so it's pretty powerful. This can be done at scale. Uh, that's an, arg an argument that I get a lot that, you know, this is a great idea, but nobody can do this at scale. Um, I think even calf cow operators or stockers can do this, um, even if they, you know, end up selling into a feedlot. Birdwell and Clark is a great example of that, not too far from you. Um, they're doing it in massive numbers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just through great grazing. Um, and it doesn't mean it has to be grass finished 100%. Um, I think that there's, there's, you know, room for better management throughout all, all types of, um, of beef production. Well, certainly interesting stuff, Diana. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pivot a little bit and kind of get into the reality that the beef industry and hunting community are closely intertwined in this battle uh, against the elitist, and trust me, Diana will explain how elitist it really is, but the elitist vegan movement. Uh, that segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land's the one thing they're not making any more of, whether you want to run cattle, um, just get out of the big city, or want a place to hunt and fish for the weekend. But if you're ready to make that dream a reality, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. They've been helping their borrowers for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from Diana Rogers on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But nothing prepared me for living with you. Lock me up tight in these shackles I wear. Tied up the keys in the folds of your hair. And the difference with me is I used Hey guys, Cable here. And uh, I want to tell you about outdoor access. See, access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? Well, outdoor access is the solution to that problem. Think Uber, but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from, and it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, Use the activation code Lone Star at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code Lone Star for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. I got just about $2, but I know someone would buy. I got 50 cents on gas if you were green to drive. We could head on down to the liquor store, find something to cure our ill. Well, if the whiskey won't do it, that cheap wine surely will. Thunder Bird Wine, a little 1100 Springs, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for dropping by and sharing a part of your week with me. 
Uh, we're still visiting with nutritionist and dietitian, author, producer, uh, Diana Rogers. And we will pick it back up with her here momentarily. First, however, this segment brought to you by First Light and the new Ash Gray lineup. From the backcountry to the bar, the muted tone of Ash Gray has you covered. I absolutely love it. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light, go further. Stay longer. All right. Uh, well, Diana, thank you so much for sticking around. Sure. Um, you know, there's so many fallacies associated with the notion that humans are herbivores. Um, going back to what you said earlier about maybe they can survive on a vegan diet if they're taking all these supplements. So that's where, you know, right there, that that's not scientific. Um, we need those vitamins and nutrients we can only get from meat uh, unless you're loading up on, on supplements. Um, are the food companies pushing ultra-processed plant-based meat alternatives, such as like you know, the one that's popular right now is the Beyond Burger, um, are they as tightly regulated as the, the ranching industry? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know much about what kind of regulations that those companies have to go through. I know that um, with Impossible Burger, there really hasn't been a ton of testing on the soy uh -huh. nodules that they use for the protein. It's not a food that humans have traditionally, eat, traditionally eaten, and um, the FDA has passed it as generally regarded as safe, GRAS. Um, but we really just don't know. Um, certainly on the label of Beyond Foods, you know, it'll look like there's protein and fat uh, similar to beef. Well, they try but, to make it look exactly like the thing that they shun. <laughs> it's just so yeah. ironic. <laughs> yeah, and coincidentally, you know, I, I went to Walmart.com and I looked at the price of Beyond Burger, and then I looked up the price of organic grass-fed beef, uh, Beyond Burger is twice as expensive per pound mm. as organic grass-fed beef, but what they do is they sell half-pound packages. Uh, okay. so they make it look like yeah. it's the same price, and here you are, you know, saving your health, saving the planet, and not killing beautiful animals. It's all marketing so, BS is what it is. So, yes, yes. Um, and there's a lot of profit to be made in ultra-processing foods. Um, not as much profit, you know, as you know, in producing beef. And so these these companies have very large marketing budgets, and they're really capitalizing on our disconnection to farming and ranching and our disconnection with sort of nature and, and what's just normal in general. Yeah. Um, if they've got a built-in network of grassroots evangelists who are going around promoting their products, um, which is it's basically just virtue signaling. Uh, and they prey on anthropomorphism, something that we've covered on the show, you know, Disneyfication mm -hmm. of wildlife and animals. Um, and it's, you know, young people, I see this whole generation of millennials that are, and thank God I just missed being a millennial by a couple of years, but um, they're, they're preying on these people. They're sheep. They can't think for themselves, which is a shame because all the science is out there. But to me, you know, being a vegan is, I think it's a mental illness because you have all of the science available and yet you turn your back to it um, and live an existence that is basically, you know, fabricated on lies, to me, in my opinion. Um, but that's my take on it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's, it, they're not healthy. And some, somehow mentally they're not all there because they believe these lies. Um, and, and it is the, it, you know, a lot of it is the younger kids that I, you see. A kid on my son's baseball team. I, we were talking, I don't know how we got on the subject. We were at practice, and uh, Henry, my son, was like, what are we having for dinner tonight? And I was like, steak. And this kid was like, no, I'm having 
uh, I'm having a cheese pizza. And I said, why don't you put some pepperoni on there? And he goes, no, 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 I don't eat meat. And I was like, but you're eating cheese on the pizza. <laughs> like, Yeah. It, you know, unfortunately, we we just haven't had... Seven years old, really, he's a kid. Yeah. We, we haven't had really good... Um, cohesive messaging from the beef industry. Um, I've seen a lot of, like, infighting inside the beef industry. You know, there's uh, typical producers and grass-fed producers are really butting heads, and it's actually just allowing big food to win more. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating to me. I mean, I've even noticed it with my sponsors, um, you know, trying to to go out and get funding for this film. Um, you You know, the so-and-so's associated with the film, so we don't want to support you. Hmm. And I'm like, wow, you know, there's a really big fight. There's a really big picture, big fight happening. And you guys are worried because you just don't like this other producer or, or this other organization that, you know, has a certification. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of competing certifications, a lot of competing, you know, nonprofits. And, um, you know, again, meanwhile, the, the plant-based folks are winning. They're, they're, they probably infight a lot too, I'm sure, as most groups do. But when it comes to policy, when it comes to pushing through things um, at, the, at the government level, they're cohesive, well-funded, and have really sharp mes- messaging, mm-hmm. um, which is really what I'm trying to do and um, with very little support. Right. Well, I mean, this is obviously a hunting and fishing talk show. Um, mm mm-hmm. And a lot of times people are like, why, do you, why, do you, why don't you leave the vegans alone? What do they do to you? And I'm like, look, I don't like hate the vegan individually, um, but what are we supposed to do? Just lay there on the mat and just get knocked out? I mean, truth has to be spread on some level. I mean, we can't just sit here and, and like you said, they're winning. Uh, I see that. And they're the people that are attacking the ranching industry, they're, they're the same ones that um, share an ideology that, that hunting is, is evil. and Exactly, you know. exactly. And I've actually talked to a bunch of hunters, um, and some of them are like, well, I don't care about beef. I only eat elk or deer or whatever. You know, I only eat what I catch, which is fine. I, I fully support that. But this is an overall, like I'm focusing on cattle mm-hmm. in this film because they're the most vilified, right? They're the most, they're, their red meat is unhealthy yeah. and, and cows are, you know, ruining the environment. But well, there's not like five percent of the population are hunters, right? And but then yeah. there's I don't know what, seventy percent are meat eaters still. So mm-hmm. obviously that's a, a much larger sector that you're dealing with. Yes. Um but but I, I just wanted to mention that um the Green Party in Sweden not too long ago had a proposal that you should not only um, cut down or eliminate all your beef intake, but they should go around and, and kill as many moose as possible because moose emit methane at an even greater number in, in Sweden than cattle. Goodness. Wow. Like, kill all the moose because they emit methane. You know what else emits <laughs> methane? Muscles. They emit tons of methane. So do we just want to have a sterile ocean floor? Like, yeah. this is insanity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I see this term, uh, regeneratarian, used uh-huh. by you on your social platforms. What exactly do you mean by that word, and how does it fit into your overall message? Uh, so that was a post actually written by a colleague of mine, Marty Kendall, who has an amazing um, diet plan that I've sort of been following lately. It sort of takes the ideas of paleo and regenerative ag and and what is an optimal diet to the, totally the next level. Um, and so the idea is really just to focus on 
well-produced meat, lots of, lots of wild meat would definitely fit into this well, Mm -hmm. Uh, organic vegetables, and really just sort of boycotting that processed food industry that's, you know, creating food that is what we call hyper palatable. It, it, you can't stop eating it. And they know that. And there's really smart people in these labs at these processed food companies, you know, creating what they call the bliss point um, so that you can't finish, you, you can't stop. You know? I could eat a whole bag of right? uh, those pita chip things. You know, yeah. some people eat them with hummus. Like I could just eat those all day and that's terrible and I hate it. Yeah, but I, I mean, love we them. all have foods that we don't have an off switch for, right? Yeah. And so, so this idea that everything in moderation is fine is actually failing and we're getting fatter and sicker. 70% of our diet in America is ultra-processed foods that are have no nutrition in them at all. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and the, you know, we just keep eating and eating and eating because we can't stop because these flavor combinations bypass all of our natural satiety signals. And, you know, I mean, how many, how many plain baked potatoes with no butter on them could you eat, right? Like zero. <laughs> yeah, zero, maybe zero. Uh-huh. But you can crush a bag of Lay's potato chips and like, how fast, right? Right. Um, so once we, it's, it's usually a carbohydrate and fat and salt combination, but sometimes it's carbs, fat, and sugar, like ice cream. But there's, there's certain flavor combinations that are very rare in nature. Um, like you, you just don't find carbs and fat together in nature mm-hmm. that often. Um, acorns are probably the closest thing. I don't know how many acorns you could throw back. <laughs> probably not that many, right? Right. Um, and so it's this whole idea that, you know, if, if we were just to stick to a piece of steak and some steamed broccoli, you know, like really basic foods that are just really focused on getting, you know, all your vitamins in the least amount of calories as possible, all your protein in the least amount of calories as possible, what does that look like? It looks like a very high protein, high animal food diet lots of oysters oysters are just off the charts they kind of beat everything i love oysters oh, yeah. yeah yep um uh i recently got i have a 16 year old son and i recently taught him how to shuck oysters and we live in massachusetts so we can get them pretty fresh here and i think it's it's the combination of him loving to surf and and just kind of it, it reminds him of surfing but also like the challenge of shucking them is really fun for him and he just says, I don't know what it is, mom. I just feel so amazing when I eat oysters. <laughs> I, I know he's not lying because the, there's the amount of zinc in there. It's off the charts. The B12 is off the charts. Um, anyhow, so, so, you know, animal foods win when yeah. it comes to nutrient density at low calories. And what, what we have right now is the complete opposite of that. We have nutrient poor food at very high calories. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we focus on um, you know, high quality animal foods, whether that's, you know, wild seafood, wild caught animals, or, you know, if you can't access that stuff, you know, lots of people eat beef, right? And so um, trying to improve how beef is raised, and then, um, you know, focusing on red meat, you know, less chicken, chicken is, is not as healthy at all as beef as far as um, nutrient density. And then filling the rest of your plate with um, nutrient-dense vegetables like peppers, spinach, asparagus, mushrooms, um, getting some sauerkraut in there, you know, really looking at, like, what's the most nutrient-dense way to eat. And I think it's a really fun way to eat because 
lots of diets are focused on deprivation. Like you, like, oh my God, I'm just cutting out pizza, I'm cutting out all this stuff. But if you focus on how do I get the most nutrition out of the food, there's actually apps you can, you can use for that. Mm-hmm. There's one called Chronometer, C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R.com. And it's a free app. You can go in, you can list all the food that you're eating, and it'll show you how much B12, how much iron, and all that kind of stuff. And um, my friend Marty runs these challenges where um, you can actually try to, like, you know, for me as a nutrition geek, I want to be the most nutrient-dense. I'm, like, super competitive. Um, And so he has these challenges, and I'm always trying to, like, all right, well, I guess I can't win today if I, you know, don't have – oysters or spinach or, or asparagus, you know, something uh-huh. like that. I've sort of figured out all the ways to win to win at the nutrient density <laughs> game. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break right here, come back, and then discuss the carbon footprint of a meat-eating society versus one where everyone goes vegan. It's, uh, it's going to be eye-opening. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by the Little Squealer Hog Light from All Seasons Feeders. You can find it along with their entire lineup of lights, feeders, blinds, and a whole lot more right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back with more from Diana Rogers on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Never gonna hear it from me I've learned my lesson well Yeah, you can go to hell Never gonna hear it from me I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide Scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. But we always look forward to Sunday there on the porch because being across from the Presbyterians, we'd crawl out about 11.30 Sunday morning in our underwear amongst four or five hundred empty beer cans, strap on a banjo and a guitar, wait for the Presbyterians. We was waiting for them to come out of church so we could sing them a little gospel music, give them something to talk about on their way to Luby's. Classic from Robert O'Keen, the Front Porch Song, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for being here as we are still visiting with nutritionist, dietitian, author, producer, Diana Rogers. And we're going to pick that conversation back up here momentarily but first this segment of the show brought to you by rustic reminders taxidermy i keep telling y'all josh and becky do amazing work and they answer the phone when i call that's why they've been taking care of me for almost a decade now whether it's an axis buck a whitetail 
uh, a lynx from British Columbia. They do it all. Trout from the Texas coast. I've got a great replica mount in the studio here. Um, they do everything. And so all these years later, I'm proud to not only say, hey, yeah, they're my tax numbers, but they're also really good friends. You can find their website at gr8mounts.com. They've got locations in San Antonio as well as Marion, Texas, just outside of New Braunfels. Check it out, gr8mounts.com. With that being said, let's pick it back up here with Diana Rogers. Uh, Certainly appreciate you sticking around through the break. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's discuss the irony of a world where everyone is a vegan. What what would happen to animals, both wild and domestic? Yeah, so the idea that we should just rewild everything and um, take up all of our available cropland with with just crops and get rid of all livestock is, first of all, it's just a, a fantasy because people live in rural areas now and wild animals really can only thrive if we cull them mm-hmm. and we've removed most of the predators. And so, um, you know, they have to be hunted. Absolutely. Or, um, you know, what, I guess the other alternative would be to get rid of all of our rural populations and move everyone into cities and then introduce wolves, right? Like I, I really I think that, that might be the only other option and I don't know how well that would fly. Well, yes. So, you, I mean, basically what you alluded to, the animals are going to lose. I mean, bye-bye wildlife. Uh, because here's the thing, these, these people who cry foul about hunting and trapping and all these other things or, or, or the beef industry they don't contribute to the conservation of any of it. They mm-hmm. they act like they do, but they don't. All they do is talk about it. The people that are funding it are hunters, anglers, ranchers. Um, and so when you take the value away from, or, you know, decentivize that from those people who support it, no one's going to protect them. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be here. Um, so, I mean, that's bye-bye wildlife. And congratulations, vegans. You just killed all the animals you claim to love. Uh, it's idiotic. Right. It makes no sense. Um, what about the environmental consequences? If we eliminated all you know, animal products like these lunatics yeah. want us to, how would it really impact greenhouse emissions? And I mean, all this farming, it runs on fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I actually have a great infographic um, on sacredcow.info slash learn. Mm-hmm. Um, if people go, it's under the helpful resources or something like that. Yeah, helpful resources. Um, and I had posted it once a long time ago, and then a, then very recently I posted it again. So it's a study that looked at what it would happen if we eliminated all animal foods in our diet, um, what would happen to greenhouse gas emissions and nutrition, you know, to the population. And what they found was uh, greenhouse gas emissions would only go down 2.6% in the U.S. and globally would only make like a 0.3% drop in, a, in total greenhouse gas emissions. So wow. pretty insi- insignificant in that way. Yeah. But what was even more of a shocker was overall caloric intake would go up. Carbohydrate intake would go up. We don't need, you know, more diabetes and obesity. Right. right. So more fat Plus, people. Great. Uh-huh. And... Um, what about then, the healthcare? I mean, that's uh, the cycle is never ending. Well, so so yeah, and so um, nutrient deficiencies would also go up. So we, we would have um, less calcium. Um, I think it was vitamin A, arachidonic acid. There were there were several key nutrients that mm. we would that we would be more deficient in. 
Um, and, and what I did in my book was actually look at what's the cost of healthcare in an obese population, you know, with a lot of lot more diabetes. So when you look at, you know, no one's actually looked at this really. Um, but let's, let's think about all the lancets, all the needles, all the insulin, hospitalizations, amputations, lost days of work. I mean, that actually has a huge impact not only to emissions, but also to our GDP um, mm-hmm. for all of that. And ironically, I had to shut down commenting on that post because um, of several vegan trolls that were just driving me nuts. But also one person told me that um, it's wrong to be what's wrong with obesity. And I'm, and I'm being, um, that shaming them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I I'm a little bit overweight, with, you know, I'm, oh I'm five gosh, ten, like, 200 pounds, but I, you know, I'm not fat. Um, uh, and I'm not racist is, towards fat people. I, I, I would love for them to be healthier. Obesity is a disease. Yeah. It is actually technically a disease. And I get, I get the idea that, you know, people are, are don't have control. I'm not saying it's someone's fault. Like necessarily, I think that our modern food environment, if you're not obese, you're not doing American right. Like, like that you're, you can't not be obese if you're eating what the dietary guidelines are saying and what's available in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So a certain level of um, what they call orthorexia would like, obsession with with trying to avoid those things is actually the only way I think you can be fit and healthy in our modern society. I mean, I I go to the gym probably uh, four to five days a week, and I feel like it's this uh, never-ending cycle of just trying to maintain already being slightly overweight, you know, (laughs) Uh, because that's when I'm on the diet, when I'm eating all the crap that, you know, basically that I want to eat with the carbs and the sugars. Um Mm-hmm. So so anyway, hopefully the carnivore diet will get that that body fat down and um, some of the the aches and you know joint pain and stuff that that I experience. Um, I've read enough from other people to say, hey, this diet cured me of some of those ailments. So we'll. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's um it's it's really hard that to see like when you like I have to work really hard to I I would have diabetes for sure if I ate what a lot of other people eat. Uh-huh. And I think just some people have to, you know, are genetically programmed or metabolically broken in a way that you just have to eat differently. And um, it can feel unfair, especially when you're talking to kids about this. Like, why does my brother, why can he eat anything? You know, we all know that person, right, that can eat absolutely anything and they're, they seem always thin and everything and you know meanwhile, oh, yeah. I look at a pizza and I gain 10 pounds yeah <laughs> um and and so I, I actually try to tell them though that it's a gift to know and it's a gift to have the the knowledge of what to eat to avoid being that way so instead of sort of feeling sorry for yourself that you have to tighten it up more than your neighbor um just you you have the tools to not get diabetes and and that's a it's a horrible disease and it's you know i i think you know just like those those black lungs that they put on smoking uh, on cigarettes i think you know we should we should see more about what diabetes actually does to people um and i i think people would be a lot more aware you know i'm not necessarily arguing for like looking at gangrene on the side of a bag of Skittles or something like that. But I think that, you know, people 
need to have better information uh, in order to help change their diets. And unfortunately, the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, and and mainstream medicine is failing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. no, no doubt about that. Uh, I could probably blame some of it on uh, the Lone Star beer, but uh, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely some carbs there. Um, as far as soil versus oil, this is another thing that you that you hit on quite frequently. Um, just go into that here briefly. Uh, soil versus oil, the Vendana Shiva. I mean, yeah, the idea that you know we should be eliminating cattle and not looking at fossil fuels is absolutely. I mean, when we vilify cattle. The people who win are the fossil fuel industry and the fake meat companies. More machinery to uh, for farming, you know. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and there's a big difference in the emissions between extracting fossil fuels and what a ruminant like a moose or or, or cattle um, actually eat, right? So so when a grazing animal eats grass and emits methane, that methane is then broken down in 10 years into um, H2O, water, vapor, and uh, CO2, which get returned to grass and and come down as rain. Um, When we extract, so it's a cycle, it's Mm -hmm. a circle. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, When we extract fossil fuels, uh, that is taking ancient carbon that's been locked in the atmosphere, in the Earth's core, and pumping it directly into the air. Um, and we're out of balance right now. We have way too much CO2 being pumped up. Um, and what we need to do with cattle is try to use them to sequester carbon. And, and other ruminants can do this too, um, as long as they're moving, as long as they're not sort of in a stationary system. So that's the type of grazing that I advocate for where, you know, uh, the animals are moved similar to how bison moved um, across the plains. They they eat quickly because and they're bunched together in a herd because they're on the move from predators, and then um, they move on very quickly and they allow that grass to rest. And w- during that resting pl- time is when um, the roots are growing back and when the carbon's being sequestered in the soil. Mm. The soil's being built. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, as we're wrapping things up here. One of the things that I've seen recently and you know making headlines it infuriated me almost as much as meatless Mondays, maybe more so is this idea of a meat tax. I mean, can you believe it? So here we have a a, lo- a large part of the population that can't it's hard for them to afford red meat already, and we want to tax these people for wanting to be healthy uh, uh, that that absolutely irks me to no end. I know, and and um, I mean we're already seeing like, elitist you know, pieces of crap is what the people facilitating that idea are. Just, just yeah, yes, and and there was a study that looked at you know projected what would happen with a meat tax, like how would that impact sales? And actually, what they found is red meat sales wouldn't go down; people would just be paying more for it. So it's basically a poor tax. Uh-huh. Um, processed meat sales would go down, um, and. I don't know why more producers of meat aren't getting behind the idea that this is a huge problem. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, many years ago, I wrote on Rob Wolf's website why a sugar tax is a bad idea, and that's because sin taxes are just a bad idea. They they um, they don't necessarily um, change behavior, and you know, a lot of people might think, well, who cares? Sugar tax? I don't eat sugar, and so that's fine. But sin taxes can seem great when they're going your way until they start taxing butter and meat, and and I predicted that about gosh, it was like four years ago or so mm-hmm. that the a meat and butter tax was next. And um, it's a very real possibility and it's incredibly misguided, you know, especially when um, what we're doing is subsidizing grain production right. at the same time. Um, so it's, 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 it's like, I feel like we're living in the twilight zone, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. It's, yeah. And again, nobody's pushing back. Like everyone's just rolling over and allowing all of this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's why I like following your page. Uh, Dr. Sean Baker has been on the show. He's uh he's pretty upfront yep. and open about his thoughts on, on veganism. Yeah. Uh, recommend folks follow him as well as you. Um, give us your, your social media outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm most active on Instagram and that's at sustainable com or not.com, I guess, Instagram at Sustainable Dish. Uh-huh. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I, I'm not super active on Twitter. Yeah, me too. Um, and that's Sustainable Dish. Facebook um, is Sustainable Dish, two words. And then I have two websites. I have um, SustainableDish.com, which is more nutrition-focused and you know, for my private practice. Um, and then I uh, SacredCow.info is really where I've been putting a little more energy lately just because of the book and film on their way out. So I have a newsletter if folks want to keep um, updated about the film progress and the book progress and where I'll be. Um, Actually, I'll be doing an event in October. We're just planning it now. um, And it looks like we'll be in Fredericksburg, Texas in October um, with Rob Wolf doing um, a really fun event um, at a bison ranch. And um, they actually allow hunting there too. So, there might be some hunting uh, <laughs> breakouts. And so um, let me ask you this. Do, do you actually hunt? I have some very good friends that are hunters and trade with me um, meat in uh-huh. exchange for vegetables and meat from my farm. Um, I was recently invited to go on a four-day hunting class in Washington, and the guy seemed awesome. I talked to him on the phone, and I'm totally blanking on his name. And... Oh, anyway, um, so I don't have, I didn't have the time right now to, to spend four days doing that just because things are so insane. And, um, but I do want to do it very badly. And, um, he does some oyster foraging, um, on the coast in Washington and my, that's, my dad lives there. So, oh, cool. um, I might meet up with him and forage for some oysters. I've gone clamming many times. Like I'm a forager for sure. Uh-huh. I just haven't actually had the opportunity to go hunting. But you are interested in it. So that's great. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I'd love to blog about it and everything. Um, and I love shooting. Like when I, when I was a kid, archery was my favorite, um, sport at, at camp and stuff like I, I i really would love to get really good at it uh-huh. and, um and go hunting sure well maybe after uh all of the the touring and promoting uh the book and and the film you'll you'll have time to to catch your so. breath and <laughs> and take it up yeah i yeah. mean this could really go in a lot of different directions and um you know maybe hunting is one of the one of the new yeah hobbies that i take up after after this big push is over we hope so Hey, Diana, it's been really great visiting with you. Thanks for for sharing your knowledge with us today. 
Um, the book comes out, Sacred Cow, July 14th, and the uh, the movie documentary will be uh, coming out around that time as well. I encourage mm-hmm. folks to check that out. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. There she goes, Sustainable Dish, author of The Sacred Cow, among other things. Diana Rogers, uh, interesting stuff there. And uh, not so much from a hunting perspective, but again, as a meat-eating community, uh, we are all in this fight together. Isn't that insane that we are in a fight for the right to consume meat? I'm, it's just absolutely mind-blowing, these vegan idiots out there. Um, that segment of the show was brought to you by my friends over at Our Luck Outfitters. They are 0% vegan, I guarantee you that. Offering the finest in Newfoundland moose hunting. I went last October, shot an ice bull. Um, truly a beautiful place, unlike any that I'd been to previously. You can find them at ourluckoutfitters.com for your moose hunting adventure. Well, Coming up next, we will take a look at perhaps the two most popular hunting calibers in North American history. Uh, we'll look at the history and compare the pros and cons of the 270 Winchester and the 30-06. Writer John McAdams from the Big Game Hunting Blog joins us after the break on the Lone Star Outdoors show. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a boon or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, they've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader? Then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see bobcat machines in person at bobcat of north texas in lewisville fort worth cedar hill longview mckinney paris and sherman visit bobcatofdallas.com today my first rifle was a 243 the papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me and they tell me how to shoot with a steady hand Guess that's something you don't understand. Now I grew Ballad of a Southern Man, Whiskey Myers, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. More importantly, thanks to you for being a part of today's presentation. Uh, we're about to talk a little firearms, specifically two of the most prominent hunting calibers in North American history and the 
270 Winchester and the classic 30-06. But before we do that, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics. You know, whether you've got a 270 or a 30-06, Vortex has the scope for you and to fit every budget from uh, the classic Vortex Diamondback line that you can get into for under $400 all the way up to the Razer AMG, which is like 3,500 bucks. I mean, they've got everything in between, you know, so really something for everybody. You'll find what you're looking for. Plus Vortex has that transferable VIP lifetime warranty that you've come to know and love. You break it, they fix it. You can find their entire lineup at vortexoptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. Let's bring on our next guest, joining us now from the Big Game Hunting blog, here to discuss the history and relevance of the 270 win and the 30-06. It's my pleasure to welcome John McAdams. Cable, it's great to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, um, a little bit about yourself as a hunter, and then what you do as a member of the hunting community media-wise. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from the, the Houston area, uh, part of Texas, and I served in the Army for a long time, so I've lived kind of all over the place. Well, thanks for your service. Yeah, no problem. You know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so right now I'm actually in El Paso. Uh, so I think this is like the eighth state that I've lived in hmm. uh, <laughs> over, over the course of my life. So I've hunted in a bunch of different places, and a bunch of uh, different animals and situations and whatnot. Uh, been to Africa several times hunted New Zealand, and then, of course, I've done a bunch of hunting uh, out west, especially since I've lived out here in El Paso, because it's a, you know, it's kind of a gateway to it. It's much easier to get to Colorado <laughs> driving from El Paso than it is from Houston. Yeah. Um, but uh, so when I was deployed to Afghanistan, uh, I started uh, a hunting blog called the Big Game Hunting Blog, kind of as just a way to, you know, occupy a little bit of the free time that I had over there. And uh, it's, it, it kind of took off and I got to meet some people and, and make some interesting connections uh, through the blog that I would not have otherwise been able to do. And so when I got out of the army, I, uh, I went into this line of work full time. Uh, I blog full time. I've got my own podcast now and I've got a, a, a hunting booking agency where I arrange trips for people to Africa and Canada, New mm-hmm. Zealand and whatnot. And so, uh, I, you're know, doing research and, and whatnot, trying to plan my future blog posts. I, realized that there was a lot of demand kind of for people that were interested in learning the difference between this caliber and that caliber, the 308 versus the 30 out six, the 270 versus the 30 out six, you know, all, you know, all, all the big ones like, sure. And so I have devoted a considerable amount of time over the last few years, really digging into, uh, to those differences there and trying to lay out the pros and cons of, of of each side of those arguments in a way that's as unbiased as possible and is as useful and as easy to digest for for people uh, you know when they're trying to you know and I'm sure most of these people are hey you know I've I want to buy a, a new hunting rifle I've heard a lot about you know these two calibers which one is best for me and so I try and help them make that decision mm-hmm. okay well and I recently read one of your articles concerning those two classic, I would say for Texas, whitetail cartridges, right? The the 270 Winchester and the 30-06 Springfield. And first of all, let's talk about the, the history of each one of those. And I know that the, mm-hmm. the 30-06 goes back, it's over 100 years old. 
Yeah, uh, they're both really old. The thirty out six is the is a little bit old is, is the older of the two. Uh-huh. Uh, so we, if you go back to say the the, the Spanish American War, eighteen ninety eight, our the American uh, military went into that conflict uh, using the trapdoor Springfield rifle chambered in forty five seventy, and then the Craig Jorgensen rifle in thirty forty Craig. And the Spanish were using Mauser rifles chambered in seven millimeter Mauser, and we got a very sobering lesson uh, on the effectiveness of the Mauser rifle and cartridge. And so after the war, the U.S. Army was like, we need something better. And I really, we really liked what the Spanish were using. So they basically copied the Mauser rifle, and that became the 1903 Springfield with some modifications. Mm-hmm. And then they built, they built a new cartridge that was very heavily influenced on the 7-millimeter Mauser that mm-hmm. we now know as the 30-06 Springfield. So it's 30 caliber cartridge and was originally first released in 1906. And the first, the original name of it was the cartridge ball caliber 30 model of 1906. And that was shortened to 30 out six. Okay. Uh, there was a, a little, a cartridge that came out right before that called the 30 out three that fired a 30 caliber, 220 grain bullet at 2,300 feet per second. That's the army bullet. didn't really <laughs> like it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, but the Army wasn't quite happy with it, so they modified it to shoot 150 grain pointed bullet at 2,700 feet per second, and that is what we now know as the 30 out six. And so that okay. was a big hit right from the start. Mm-hmm. And um, it caught on rather quickly with the hunting community. It definitely did, right? Yeah. So it fired smokeless powder, high velocity pointed bullet, and uh, remember, this is when a lot of cartridges used a round or a flat nose bullet, and so this was just kind of a quantum leap forward in technology and hunters loved it and the military loved it. And it was, you know, it got off to a good start. Um, you know, so this was also right around the time that lever action rifles were still super popular in the USA and, you know, smokeless powder and, and bolt action rifles were starting to come on the scene, but really after world war one was when you saw kind of a big change in the culture of, of, of what hunters and shooters like to use. Mm-hmm. All these guys went to Europe and the army were using bolt action rifles there. And then they came back after the war and they said, I want, I want one of those. Like that's, that's really nice. And so Winchester in 1925 introduced the Winchester model 54 rifle, which was an incredibly successful bolt action rifle. And it was available in 30 six, as well as a brand new cartridge that they released at the same time as the rifle that we now know as the 270 Winchester. Hmm. Uh, so, so any it, it, kind of an interesting phenomenon that you see with any real popular cartridge is that um, you'll often see people modifying it like it's good, you know, and it's in its original way of doing things, but they'll modify it to, to be a little bit better suited for a more specific task. And so, so the designers at Winchester, they decided that they liked the 30-06, but they wanted it to shoot a little bit smaller diameter bullets. And so. I mentioned the 30-03 earlier. Well, it was the parent of the 30-06, and it was also the parent of what became the 270. Hmm. Uh, so it had a short life, but it's actually the parent of two of the most popular cartridges of all time in the USA, the 30-06 and the 270. Yeah. So uh, really the biggest, there's so many similarities between the two cartridges. If you just put one next to the other one, they had the same diameter, same case diameter, and the same overall length. The 270 case is just a tiny bit longer, and then the only real big difference between them other than that is they shoot different size bullets. Yeah. The 
30-06 is 30 caliber, so it shoots .308 inch bullets, and the 270 shoots .277 inch bullets. Okay. So a little bit small. And so, and the 270 was designed originally with Winchester. Their thought was 130 grain bullet. Yeah, that's right. So that very first load that they introduced with it was a 277 caliber, 130 grain bullet at about, I think, 3140 feet per second. Mm-hmm. So blazing fast velocity for 1925. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know. Just as a reminder, that original 30-06 military load was a 150-grain bullet at 2,700 feet per second. So that's a little over 400 feet per second faster for the 270. Yeah. Shot uh, quite a bit flatter, and it actually had less recoil. You know, so depending on the exact load, maybe 20 to 40 percent less recoil than than some of those original 30-06 loads. Okay. Interesting. As we talk about ballistics here. And that obviously is going to have to do with your bullet choice. And 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 I'll be honest with you, I shoot a 270 pretty frequently, and I think I think I'm shooting a 150 grain bullet um, at this point, which I think is pretty common now. I I don't know. I wonder that it'd be interesting to know, like the evolution of when do they start making heavier heavier bullets for the 270. Um, I don't know if that's something that happens over 10 years, 20 years, or maybe 30 years. That is a good question, and I could not tell you exactly when the hundred, the first 150 grain load came out for it. Mm-hmm. But to this day, I mean, you're right. The 130 grain and the 150 grain are the two most popular bullets, bullet weights that you're going to see for the 270. Yeah. We'll see some a little lighter, and then there's some 140, 145 grain bullets. But that's the prototypical two loads for the 270 is a 130 grain bullet at around 100, excuse, around 3,000 ish feet per second. And then 150 grain bullet at say 28, 2900 feet per second. And on the on the 30-06 side of things is the standard because I honestly have never owned a 30-06. Um, I have a, a safe full of rifles, and that's one caliber that for some reason has uh, never made its way in there. What is the standard for that? Is is the 150 still the gold standard for the 30-06? So 150 is an extremely popular bullet uh, weight, you also get some 165, 168, and uh-huh. 180 grain bullets. You'll see basically from 110 grains all the way up to 220 for mm-hmm. the 30-06, but those in that 150 to 180 grain range are, are the most popular that you're going to find the most choices of. So would the most fair comparison be at this point to you know care, compare a 150 to a 150 out of each? You know, sort of. You know, the you know, it's an interesting deal with, with both of them. All three of those loads for the 30-06 are extremely popular. Uh, and so that 130-grain load for the 270 is probably still one of the most common. Uh-huh. And it's a really good load for hunting deer and, and other deer size game in general. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you could definitely compare, say, the 150 to the 150 there. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the, in your article, talk about ballistically, you know, how you compared them and and what the uh, the differences are. Yeah. So the in general, even today, you're still going to have a, a lot of the same a lot of the same pros and cons of each cartridges are, are still what they were back in the early 1900s. So since then, the average velocity of the 30-06 has increased a little bit. So you're you're you go to Walmart and buy a factory load. Um, of 150 grain 30 out six ammo, you're gonna it's gonna be shooting a little bit faster than what they had back then due to advances in powder technology. So you can get say 
2,900, maybe 3,000 feet per second, thereabouts with 150 grain bullet, which is, you know, a couple hundred feet per second faster with the 270. And so, or excuse me, than what you had with it back in the day. Uh The 270 is still going to be faster and it's still going to shoot a little bit flatter, but the gap between them is narrowed. Uh, In general, with the 270, you're going to have a tiny bit flatter trajectory, depending on the exact load that you're dealing with. Say at 300 yards, it's going to be maybe a half inch to maybe two inches less bullet drop than the uh-huh. 30-06, depending on, like I said, on the exact load. Going out to maybe 500 yards, it increases the four to eight inches of separation. So, right, it's certainly something, right? It's not it's something, something to keep in mind, but it's not a gigantic difference between them. They're both flat shooting. 270 is a little bit flatter shooting. Okay. The This is interesting because I've always, like <laughs> – I've always just grabbed the 270 and said, okay, this is a great Texas whitetail rifle where the shots are inside 200 yards. And maybe it's just my own ignorance, but I always thought that it started to drop faster than, say, the the other go-tos in my, my gun safe, which would be uh, a 7 mag or a 300 wind mag, uh, even a 243. So so the 7mm the magnum and the 300 wind mag are both in a whole different category significantly more powerful even than the 30 out six so you're right yeah uh they are you know the 270 is going to have more bullet drops than them um inside 200 yards they're all fantastic cartridges oh sure uh, especially on deer on deer size game and 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 really for most people that's what they use their 270 for hunting whitetail deer inside of 200 yards and it's wonderful for that yeah um one of the reasons though why the 270 really kind of took off with that certain segment of the hunting community was because, especially back then in the 1920s and 30s, with the ammo and technology that they had, it really did have a, a, a pretty good advantage over the 30 6 in those certain areas. Okay. You know, when you ever, whenever you talk about the 270, Jack O'Connor uh, is one of the guys that's always going to be associated with it because he loved the 270. Right. And he was especially well known. He hunted a lot of things, but he was especially well known for his sheep hunting. And uh, you, when you're hunting sheep, you're in real steep terrain where you, you know, Long shots, possibly, for sure. Yeah, longer shots and rough terrain. And sheep are are not very big or very tough animals. They're they're prototypical thin-skinned game there. And so because the 270 had a little bit less recoil than the 30-06, you could have a lighter rifle chambered in 270 that had as much or less, possibly even less recoil than a heavier rifle in 30-06. So you're climbing mountains, that 270 rifle is going to be easier for you to carry, and then it's going to have a little bit flatter trajectory, but still hit really, still be very effective on a on a sheep. Yeah. Uh, well, then this is fascinating hunts. because you think about back then in the 1920s and 30s, uh, the 270. It sounds like what you're telling me was like the flattest shooting option. Like it was, and now today, it, uh, I wouldn't even. I don't know. It wouldn't even cross my mind to take that gun somewhere where I was going to be shooting out to five, six hundred yards. Yeah, and you know, so you also got to remember too the three hundred Win Mag and the seven millimeter Remington Magnum. They didn't exist until the nineteen sixties. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, you know, back then you had like the three seven five H and H, the thirty out six, the two seventy, you know, the the, the two forty three. All those they came along, you know, later. And so mm-hmm. one of the reasons why the thirty out six and the two seventy came along, or they're still so popular is because they just had a, such a head start on the other ones. And compared to what was available uh, during that time, 
they were great, and they're still great, uh, even though some other ones have come along since then. But they're they're really well established uh, in the market now, and, and they still do the job well enough, even though other ones still you know may have a advantage in one area or another over them. It's not big enough to make many people make that switch. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think there's a lot of tradition, like you're talking about the the jump start. Hey, my grandfather passed down, and I do have my grandfather's 270. Um, and I'm sure many people listening today have either their dad or their grandpa's, maybe even their great grandpa's 30 out six. So mm-hmm. what, who doesn't want to have that nostalgia and take that, that piece of family tradition into the field with them? Uh, so that's, that's, that's right. Pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. There's a ton of good quality ammo that's available for both of them. Uh, if you go to a Cabela's or even a Walmart or something, they're going to have a lot of really good choices. Well, I don't know about Walmart really anymore. Stuff. I'm starting to see empty shelves there where the where the ammo used to be. <laughs> the, uh... Well, yeah, I was just at one yesterday, and I was you know because I knew we were going to be talking about this. Uh-huh. I, I was looking at their selection, and the 270 and the 30 odd six they had of what they had there. That was the most, yeah, uh, for for those two calibers. Sure, um, sure. And what you pay for uh, ammo for those two cartridges, as far as big game hunting cartridges, that's probably going to be some of the most reasonably priced stuff that that you can find too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of great reasons to to hunt with them, and your ammo selection is great for both of them. And then same thing with rifles. You know, if you you know, you've got all these old rifles that uh, are still hanging around that are 50 or even old, 50 years or even older old. Plus, there's plenty of new ones that are being manufactured uh, that are great quality as well for both of them. Um, just about any of the big gun manufacturers are going to chamber rifles in both of those calibers. Of course, for, yeah. You know, for, for whatever it is they make. So if you're considering, let's just say you're, you're considering buying one today, um, what... Like specifically, if you just want to hunt hogs and whitetail, and you're looking at the 270 versus the 30 out six, um, which one would you go with? Gosh, man, it's you know some some people you know say it's kind of a Ford versus a Chevy question, yeah, and it comes down to a lot of personal preference there because for deer and for hogs inside 200 yards, they're both very very capable. There's not a tremendous difference between them. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally am a Ford guy, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a Chevy guy or whatever else either. I come down on the 30 out six side, but that's just me. And there's, like I said, there's nothing wrong with the 270 for sure. front deer and hogs inside 200 yards. And so it sounds like you're a 270 guy. Well, yeah, and then like I said, that's just because I didn't. <laughs> I, my grandfather had a 270, and and then I've mm-hmm. since got. I kind of baby that one. <laughs> I don't really take it out as much, and so and I have my own 270, but it's weird. Um, you know, as a hunter, you go through all these calibers and let's say, I think I first started hunting with, um, a 308, to be honest with you. And I, it it wasn't my favorite, uh, as I moved on to a seven mag, shot that one religiously for probably five years and killed it. I mean, killed everything from elk to hogs and every, you know, everything in between with that one. Love that caliber, even killed an eland with it in Africa. Um, but lately, uh, the 270 is one that probably the last two or three seasons I've really latched on to if I'm staying here in Texas, you know. And uh, and then this season, because I was preparing for a moose hunt, I needed to uh, take it up to a 300 wind mag. And so I'm just like, you know what, I'm only going to hunt with this this fall. And even with whitetail, it's definitely overkill. You don't need a 300 wind mag to shoot a Texas whitetail. But I did it just mm-hmm. so that I was, you know, 100% comfortable with that. 
um, you know, for the moose hunt and everything. So, um, there's so many great calibers, <laughs> but these are these yeah. are the two that are kind of uh, the the most uh, prestigious. And when you think about uh, American hunting, like you said, the, the 270 and the 30-06, there's certainly probably more of those rifles out there than than any other caliber. If I had to guess, I would probably say in the United States, just on any given year, your top five best-selling cartridges, centerfire rifle cartridges, are going to be probably 223, 308, 3030, 30 odd six, and 270. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're, you know. And today, know, though, John, if you were preparing for, say, something more like Western, and I don't know if the 270 is still a viable option for that with so many of the magnums out there today, um, but would you take the 270 over the 30 out six if you were, say, going on a, uh, uh, a goat hunt or a black bear hunt in the backcountry? You know, so for black bear, you know, at, at typical shooting ranges inside 200 yards, once again, not a tremendous difference between them. I personally uh, would bump it up a little bit to the two to the uh, to the 30 out six. You know, going on a mountain hunt, you know, for sheep or mountain goat, I'd probably go with the 270 if you're just having to choose between these two. Yeah. Um, going for elk or moose, the 270 will do it. The 30 out six is probably better uh mm-hmm. and i would say remember so the 270 is 90 percent has 90 percent the diameter of the 30-06 and so that actually translates into the 30-06 having about 25 percent more frontal surface area than the 270 so you hit something with it it's all other things being equal it's going to make a bigger hole cause more uh tissue damage and it also has more kinetic energy than mm-hmm. the than the 270 does yeah. um i i have a good friend uh that He's he's a one rifle guy has a has a two seventy hunts everything with it. He took it to he's taken it to Canada and killed the moose and the caribou with it. Took it to Africa and among other things killed the blue wildebeest and a kudu with it. All of them one shot kills. He was using quality ammo and he can shoot really well. Mm-hmm. So all of, you know he was placing the shots where they needed to go and it caused him no problems at all and he had great hunts. Uh, so yeah, you could totally take elk and moose with with a 270. Well, and going back to that moose hunt in Canada, like that, the outfitter, my guide, he told me that's what he uses for all of his personal moose hunts, like his meat hunts after after he's done with guiding season. He wants to put some meat in the freezer for the year, and the 270s is a go to. Yeah, you uh, you know, because remember that that advantage that the 270 has over the 30 six is it does have less recoil and. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people handle the recoil of the 30 out six just fine. Uh, some people just shoot quite a bit better with the, with the 270 and, and your shot placement is such an important factor there that, um, you know, it, putting that smaller bullet where it needs to go, the 270 is big enough to get the job done. If you, if you put it where it needs to go, uh, especially if you compare it to a, a poorly placed shot from a 30 caliber or something else, um, but like I said, if you shoot the thirty out six well, and you can put those bullets where they need to go, right in the vitals of the animal, it is probably a better and more effective choice, especially on really big game, than the two seventy is. Mm-hmm. That brings up another you know, topic you... for another day: vitals versus front shoulder. Uh, that'll be <laughs> something to get into. <laughs> you know, so my dad years ago was hunting in Africa, uh, and. He was hunting with a lever-action rifle uh, that was not really well-suited for hunting in the Kalahari on this particular spot mm-hmm. uh, where he was. 
came across a, a really nice Gimsbach or an Oryx out there. And so he wanted to shoot it. The guy gave him his, his rifle to shoot, which was a 270. Um, dad hit it right on the shoulder and it broke the shoulder, but that little bullet was, it was not a, not a great bullet they were using. It was a, a real light frangible bullet broke the shoulder, but did not penetrate into the body cavity. Hmm. Uh, and so it didn't hit the lungs or the heart, uh, but it just annihilated that shoulder and it fell down and he shot it again when it went down and killed it. Uh, but that was a case of a light, uh, not very well constructed bullet, not doing the job. And so. If you're going to use the 270, those lighter 130 grain bullets are great for deer and hogs, but for really big stuff like elk or, you know, eland or moose or whatever, you need to make sure that's where those 150 grain bullets are much more important, especially using like a Nossler partition or a Swift A-frame. You know, mm-hmm. you do that, then it, it turns that bullet to a whole different ball game there. And it's, I mean, quite, quite frankly, the 270 is more effective now on that really big game than it was uh, when it was first introduced just because the quality bullets we have now are so much better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always kind of, that's kind of my mentality is, um, you know, if you're under gun, let's say, then mm-hmm. in the vitals, if you've got something that says Magnum on, on it, uh, you're probably <laughs> safe to shoot it in the shoulder. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I've always been one who doesn't want to chase something and if especially if it's if it's a mature trophy you know hey i i'm i'm a a meat hunter i also love to put a rack on the wall so um mm-hmm. i and, and usually to be honest with you the outfitter doesn't want to track things right and they're there if you're hunting with an outfitter going to say on the shoulder on the shoulder take out the four-wheel drive he's not going anywhere just like your dad did even though he was undergunned um and had to shoot it again he broke that shoulder and and they're not they're not going anywhere at that point. So you will you do lose a little bit of meat, but uh you're not doing you're not tracking for the most part. So there's merits to both. Yeah, definitely. And you know, like I said, it's it's a matter it is a matter of personal preference. And at the same time, like I said too, if you're using one of those smaller calibers, like in this case the two seventy versus thirty out six, that bullet choice and construction and weight becomes that much more important. Uh, the 150 grain bullet, you know, like I said, in a quality bonded bullet or something like that is definitely uh, much more important um, when you're, you know, hunting that really big, big game with the caliber on the smaller side. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating stuff today. I certainly enjoyed, um, for me, the, the historical aspect was nice to hear because it's not something that I've, you know, ever researched on comparing the, the 30 out six and the 270, but everyone knows these are classic calibers that American hunters have been using for well with the uh the 30 out 6 over 100 years and the 270 I guess not far behind it so um if you want to give your your website where folks can check out your articles and your podcast yeah sure yeah if you want to learn more about the the history and the capability of some of, some of the really popular uh rifle cartridges that uh, people love to hunt with uh, check out the Big Game Hunting Blog. It's real simple, thebiggamehuntingblog.com. And I have a podcast that talks about a lot of that same stuff. Uh, it's also real simple, the Big Game Hunting Podcast. And you can find that at biggamehuntingpodcast.com. Okay, John. Well, hey, man, I certainly appreciate it. And we'll have to do this again somewhere on down the line. Hey, that sounds great, Cable. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, there he goes. John McAdams of the Big Game Hunting Blog. Hopefully you all enjoyed that one. I know I did. Um, I always love going back and looking at the historical impact and importance of 
various calibers and specific style of guns. Uh, so that one was uh, was fun for me, no doubt. That segment, by the way, brought to you by John X Safaris and uh, Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here. We are flat out of time. Thanks to both of our guests today, uh, Diana Rogers, as well as John McAdams. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, I'll wash your hands and have a great week in the outdoors. <laughs>